Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Less than a month into the new U.S. administration, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be the fourth foreign leader to confer with President Trump in Washington. How will the bilateral relationship change in the Trump administration? What is on the Israeli Premier's agenda on this first visit to the Trump White House? And how does the alliance with Israel serve America's broader interests in the Middle East? What does Israel really need? It's the same thing the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the others need. They need a reassertion of American leadership in the, in the Middle East. So that America's team, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it is actually one in reality, that our team, Israel, moderate Arab states, etc., that our team has a captain that is effective and that is doing its job. That's what Israel really needs. And that, I think, is an important test for the Trump administration. Will they play that captain's role for our team in the Middle East? Israel also likes this role as regional advocate. I remember the Rabin years. When Rabin, before he would come to Washington, he would stop in Cairo, he would stop in Amman, he would stop uh, other places, because he'd like to say, here, I'm going to raise your issues in Washington. That has a lot of cachet for Israel, and people in Washington don't always appreciate that. That was Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff and Ziegler Distinguished Fellow David Makovsky. Join us as these two veteran observers preview the Netanyahu-Trump visit and the near-term agenda for bilateral relations. After this... This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Robert Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute and author of the recent Presidential Transition Studies, Moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem from Campaign Promise to Policy Change, and Strengthening Stability in Northwest Africa, co-authored with Sarah Foyer. These remarks were recorded at a policy forum in Washington on February 8, 2017. What do we know, what do we think we know, about um, overall Trump administration Middle East policy? Where does Israel fit into this? It seems to me, when you look back on the statements of candidate Trump, on the um, early pronouncements of President-elect Trump, And the first set of moves by President Trump, we do have three identities of Donald J. Trump that we can draw on, Uh, it seems to me that we should identify four main objectives for Trump Middle East policy. One, the clear commitment to destroy ISIS, Not, uh, uh, not diminish, not degrade, not contain, not shrink but destroy. And within that, there's the, the larger battle against radical Islamic extremism. And we all know the debate that is emerging around, around that. Um, destroy is a very high bar. And I think that the, uh, 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 it is the lens through which the new administration will view regional actors. To what extent are they contributing to this goal, to the destruction of ISIS? Um, and here, I would say that among Arab states, the actor that is likely to emerge as a, uh, a key party and a, a, uh, an old but now new ally will be Egypt. Uh, Egypt, I'll say more about this in a moment, but Egypt is likely to, to be the poster child of this focus on destroying 
uh, ISIS and radical Islamic extremism writ large. And among non-Arab countries in the region, Turkey is, the, um, is returning to favor. We just saw a, um, a presidential telephone call with uh, um, Erdogan this week, and we can see a renewal of that relationship um, uh, where this issue, if you'll excuse the term, trumps all the other issues on the agenda with these two countries, the domestic issues. That's point one. So point two, second goal, get tough on Iran. Now, sometimes this is described as ripping up the Iran nuclear agreement, sometimes described as enforcing the hell out of the agreement, quote unquote, but always defined as pushing back on Iran's negative and aggressive behavior throughout the region. Um, my own view is I think the debate about ripping up the agreement has essentially been settled, and um, there are very few um, uh, prominent voices for ripping up the agreement any longer. Um, uh, the debate is within the how you enforce the hell out of it, and what is the connection between enforcing the hell out of the agreement and the broader effort to push back on Iran throughout the region. From my perspective, that's a good debate to have. The third main objective, make sure that allies like Saudi Arabia pay their share for collective defense. Um, this was a prominent theme, of course, in the campaign. Also um, uh, uh, in the post-election, less so since inauguration. But that subcurrent nevertheless remains. More about that in a minute. And then the fourth theme I would identify, the fourth objective, is restore friendship with Israel on a strategic and political level. Now, why do I phrase it that way? I phrase it that way because we've just gone through um, a fascinating experience in the Obama administration, where it is absolutely true that the Obama administration uh, successfully engineered with Israel uh, the deepest, broadest, most profound uh, military security and intelligence relationship of any administration uh, previously compared to any administration before. At the same time, it's not a but, but it's an and. And at the same time, it had with Israel one of the tensest, rawest, most angst-filled political, and strategic relationships. It navigated a path where it could do both at the same time. So that on the most profound political strategic issues, Iran, the peace process, the United States and Israel were at loggerheads. On the, on the second issue, the peace process at loggerheads from day one. At uh, on the first issue, at Iran, at loggerheads throughout the second term, essentially. And yet, they still maintained um, an, inc an increasingly improving military security intelligence relationship. My view is that the Trump administration will define its objective as being to repair this sense of deep political strategic divide. It will begin from a different premise. It will begin from a premise of trying to seek strategic understanding that it will be in both Israel's interest and America's interest to begin this partnership at the highest level with a strategic understanding 
on the core issues that so divided the, um, uh, uh, the Obama and Netanyahu governments. All right, these are the objectives. If these are the objectives, then almost immediately they pose contradictions. And these are the contradictions that I think are still being grappled with, still being worked out. Of course, we know that in the State Department, as of still noon today, only one person has been appointed, the secretary. And we know in the Defense Department, it's no better. So the human capital isn't really there yet. Hopefully it'll be there soon, because grappling with these conundra is really what will define Trump administration foreign policy. What are these paradoxes? What are these conundra? Well, there are five. One, destroying ISIS may be urgent, but pushing back on Iran is important. And indeed, pushing back on Iran is in many ways essential to the ultimate destruction of ISIS. After all, one of the key contributing factors to the rise of ISIS is the absence of Sunni governance and the filling of that vacuum by Iranian-supported um, powers in Iraq and, in a different way, in Syria. How do you disentangle this? This connects to the second conundrum, the relationship with Russia. If Russia is potentially a key partner, potentially, I think its real role in uh, partnering to destroy ISIS is exaggerated. We can go into that if you'd like. But if Russia is potentially a key partner in the battle against ISIS, how do you deal with the fact that Russia's number one ally in the region is Iran? Now, we've seen a lot of talk about the potential or the goal of disentangling Russia and Iran, separating Russia and Iran. It's great in theory, tough in practice. And this will be a major conundrum for the administration. Third, destroying ISIS, again, one of the very few specific foreign policy objectives promised by the president, destroying ISIS would be a Pyrrhic victory without taking steps to ensure that we don't very soon thereafter have son of ISIS, that ISIS isn't replaced by the next set of Sunni jihadists. I mean, remember, this is very much like, uh, um, you know, the recitation of generations in Genesis. Al-Qaeda begat Islam, um, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq begat ISIS. Will ISIS begat son of ISIS? Perhaps an even worse, even more venomous Sunni jihadist threat. The only way to prevent that, we, I think we all know the story. The only way to prevent this is a modicum of reasonably effective Sunni governance in the areas of Western Iraq and Eastern Syria. And that requires Sunni Arab allies. There's no avoiding it. You have to have them at some point. They may not have to be there on the takeoff, but they better be there on the landing. And so. Turkey isn't the solution, Russia isn't the solution, Iran isn't the solution. You need Sunni Arab allies. Fourth, I mentioned earlier 
Egypt, how Egypt may be the most significant political beneficiary of this, this uh, new era of focusing on radical Islamic extremism. And I'm, I have no doubt that uh, when President Sisi comes to Washington, he will be embraced with open arms, kisses on both cheeks. But after the embrace and after the kisses, what does Sisi really need? He really needs a way to monetize that friendship. A way to monetize that friendship. Egypt is in very serious economic straits. I took my family on a wonderful family vacation to Egypt just a few weeks ago over uh, New Year's holiday. We had a great time. But we were virtually the only tourists in the country. And the Egyptian economy, at every corner, you could see how serious the situation was. I urge you all to visit Egypt, by the way. It's gorgeous. But they need help. And I doubt very much the Trump administration is going to be opening up its own wallets. So what that means is real diplomacy, real reactivation of America's leadership role to try to overcome this deep divide between the Saudis, the Gulfies, and Egypt, which today leads the Egyptians to receive nothing from Saudi Arabia. And lastly, what's the conundrum with Israel? Because with Israel, there's a conundrum too. While bilateral relations with Israel and other allies, but in this case with Israel, I think are likely to be better than ever. I think you're likely to see a relationship between President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu that rivals the relationship between Bill Clinton and Yitzhak Rabin. But that's not the real question of what Israel looks for in America. What does Israel look for in America? If Dennis were here, I think at this point, he would probably tell briefly the story of Ben-Gurion and Kennedy. When Kennedy um, met Ben-Gurion at the Waldorf Astoria, thanked him um, early in his term, thanked him. Uh, he said, you know, the American Jewish community was, 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 was very helpful in my election. I want to thank you very much. He didn't quite get the distinction between Israelis and Jews at that point. And he said, what can I do for you? And Ben-Gurion said back to Kennedy, there is something you can do for me. Be a good president for America. Namely, be a good leader. That was what we need in, America, for, in Israel. That is what we want. If you're good, a leader, if you're good for America, you'll be good for us. What does Israel really need? It's the same thing the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the others need. They need a reassertion of American leadership in the, in the Middle East. So that America's team, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it is actually one in reality, that our team, Israel, moderate Arab states, etc., that our team has a captain that is effective and that is doing its job. That's what Israel really needs. And that, I think, is an important test for the Trump administration. Will they play that captain's role for our team in the Middle East. Well, so this leads just very quickly to the, to the meeting next week. Now, in some sense, of course, it may be either a little early or a little late for this meeting. It's a little late in the sense that we just saw Bibi wasn't the first to town. The King of Jordan got here first, parked himself in Washington for a week, didn't have an appointment with President Trump, but found his way 
to not only have that meeting, but be effective. And we saw that by the end of the day of King Abdullah's meeting with President Trump, a reflection of that, namely the first mild, but still substantial, a mild critique of Israeli policy um, on settlements. It's a little early to come, if he's late on that score, it's a little early to come in the sense that there are still so few people entrenched in positions in order to take whatever Netanyahu's message is and turn it into, um, uh, you know, execute inside our government. But there's enough for it to be relevant. The two big issues, the first, extremely sensitive, not at all easy. How to educate President Trump on the primacy and priority of the Iran issue. And the challenge is to do this in such a way that it doesn't either embarrass or threaten the president's stated commitment to destroy ISIS. Now, it is clear that there is also a deep desire to push back on Iran. But we all know that in government, it's tough to do too many things at once, and certainly tough to do too many things effectively at once. And so this is a real challenge, I think, for Netanyahu. How to carefully, subtly, in an engaging, partner way, shift the ship of state so that effectively the priority is how to push back on Iran. In doing so without the president having to walk back in any way or withdraw at any way from his commitment on destroying ISIS. Not an easy task. Secondly, to reach an understanding with the president on the volatile issues surrounding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, on the volatile issues surrounding settlement activity, in such a way that uh, the prime minister can have enough of a victory here so that he can withstand whatever pressures he, have, he has back home. This also is no simple task, although I think that there is a real potential here to reset the agenda on the issues that caused so much tension, so much anxiety, and that, that eroded the U.S.-Israel partnership over the last eight years. Part of that is the Jerusalem embassy issue. Now, I've written about this in one of these transition papers, so I'm not going to repeat my analysis in any detail today, except to say a couple of points. First, this too was a campaign promise among the small number of campaign promises. And so I expect the president to find a way to implement and fulfill this campaign promise. Um, second, this promise also has a role to play in what I said earlier, namely, how can Netanyahu return to Israel, either now or in the near future, with enough of political victory from the United States to enable him to withstand the pressure from the further right. This, I think, plays an important role in that. And this also plays a very complicated, subtle role in Israel's discussion 
about the peace process. Because if, as uh, many commentators have suggested, the United States moves its embassy to, to West Jerusalem, which I think is the right way to do it, and if Israel, if the United States puts this in the context of uh, repairing the injustice of not having an embassy there for, for 68 years, um, uh, and yet also says, you know, we recognize that Israel and the Palestinians have agreed that the eventual permanent status of Jerusalem will be subject to negotiations and we will support whatever the outcome of those negotiations are. This puts a fascinating point of pressure on the hard right in Israel. Yes, you want to embrace the move of the American embassy to Jerusalem, but at the same time, you have to embrace the idea that even the Trump administration recognizes that Jerusalem will be negotiated. This goes with part and parcel, it seems to me. Um, uh, it doesn't define what the outcome will be, but just to reaffirm the idea that there's negotiations is, I think, an important element of uh, what this could be all about. You know, I did say um, uh, in my piece that timing, that piece about Jerusalem Embassy, that timing is uh, one of the key criteria. And here I'll just conclude. Uh, this is one of the issues that you either do very soon or not for a while. This isn't one of these issues which is out there three, four, five, six months from now. You know, the, the, very, the conventional Washington answer for something is, we'll do it six months from now. Six months is just long enough, so it seems close, but it's long enough that people forget that you, that you promised that you were going to do it. You can't do this six months from now. You do this now, well before the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem, well before the anniversary of the Six-Day War, or you have to wait until that episode is behind. Because if, you're, if you want to avoid or to limit the risk, if you want to limit the risk of provocation, you don't enmesh this in the 1967 set of issues, you anchor it in what I call the 1948 set of issues. The absence of an American embassy in Jerusalem is a residue of a 1948 decision by the Truman administration. That is what President Trump can repair. But to enmesh it in the 1967 set of issues only heightens the possibility that it triggers the sorts of reaction that you're trying to avoid. So it really is an issue for now, in the next several weeks, well before the decision in May about whether or not to extend the waiver in the law on the embassy. That was Robert Satloff. Next, we'll hear from David Makovsky, Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process at the Institute. In 2013-2014, he served as senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Israel-Palestinian Negotiations under Secretary of State John Kerry. He is the co-author, with Ambassador Dennis Ross, of the presidential transition study Toward a New Paradigm for Addressing the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. These remarks were recorded at a policy forum in Washington on February 8, 2017. I, I just returned from a trip to the region, to Israel and Ramallah, and um, have, have tried to kind of scope out what I think this first visit is going to be, is going to be like. Um, there's, 
there's no doubt that in a certain way there's there's lower expectations because indeed you know President Trump doesn't have his team in place, so it's easier for him to say I'm 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 in the listening mode. So why is it so important that Netanyahu is the third invited person here to Washington after Theresa May, and I think Prime Minister Abe of Japan? Um, I think first it is symbolic, as as Rob suggests. Uh, you have this duality at the end of the last administration of uh, this heightened closeness when it comes to military and intel and other forms of security cooperation, but you had some very bruising policy fights on Iran and settlements that really lasted all of eight years. So it's a symbolic step. But it's also a fact that knowing Washington and Netanyahu uh, being Israel's second longest serving prime minister who, who likes to come here is very, he knows the rhythm of Washington, which is don't come too late before the policy is set in concrete. All everything's in flux is the time to try to influence the contours of a new approach. So I think that those are two factors um, that uh, would drive him here. Now, where does that, um, what are the issues? I, I mean, I would put them as like four. Um, two of them are Iran-related. The first one is, you know, is the nuclear issue. And, uh, you know, you, you heard from Rob this question of scrap or enforce. Uh, everyone I met in Israel was of the enforcement school. Uh, you know, they want to enforce it vigorously. They felt that they were a little worried that the new administration was so invested in the deal that they were somehow worried if they enforced it too vigorously, it could upset the apple cart. So they didn't want to do that. But I think that um, basically, from what I hear from the people around Netanyahu, it's not just about the provisions of the deal, but as one uh, key advisor said to me, 80 to 90 percent of our concerns coming to Washington on Iran when it comes to the nuclear deal is about these so-called sunset provisions, you know, the, the elements of the deal that fade out in 10 to 15 years. They could research new enrichment now, of course, but in terms of, of you know, assembling new centrifuges and having unlimited enrichment from low enriched to high enriched, That'll fully come online, let's say, within 15 years. You know, and the president, you know, the, the president is and Netanyahu hopefully meeting where Netanyahu is going to say to him, "And then what?" Uh, in the in the space of history, that's a, a you know a flip of the eye. It's a it's it's nothing. And uh, we all hope best case scenario that Iran is transformed, etc. But we can't assume uh, best case scenario. So I think this issue um, is going to be is going to be very important. Now, there'll be issues, I'm sure, on the sanctions. It'll be interesting. Netanyahu might have been surprised that the U.S. has already moved on the ballistic missile sanctions idea. There'll be questions of terror sanctions. What's outside the four corners of the JCPOA? Um, you know, they could discuss that. But I think for the most part, um, uh, you know, then the question is, who's going to come along with the United States if you do it? Is it a way to upset the apple cart? Um, clearly, the, the, the confirmation hearings of Tillerson and Mattis made it clear that they were in the enforcement school, not in the scrap school. Is, is that where the president is, too? We can't always assume that, uh, to put it gently. Uh, so I think that is something that, that you know, Netanyahu is going to come to take a pulse to get a sense of where, where is the president on this enforce versus scrap. And what is the thinking going forward? Is there going to be different messaging by the U.S. to Iran about this, about uh, how, how do you deal with, um, 
the fading out of some of these provisions? How are you going to work with the Arab states? How are you going to work with Israel and contingency planning? I heard a lot about the kind of biblical allusions was I, when I was over there in the book of Genesis. If you remember the dream of Joseph, uh, of Pharaoh, that he, and Joseph was the, you know, the grand interpreter of dreams. They, they were the, they were the, they were the good years, uh, and they were the lean years. And the question was, how do you make sure that the lean years don't overwhelm the good years? So, in a certain way, that's here too. That uh, I think most Israeli security officials will say that JCPOA, in, in, in the short term, has, has certainly made things better. Uh, in terms of taking all these uranium, uh, taking uranium out of the country, dismantling many of the centrifuges, ripping up the core of the plutonium reactor. But how do you prepare for the lean years? Who's going to use time more wisely? So I think that's, that seems to me the first question. The second one also, Iran related, is the region. And how do you constrain Iranian influence in the region? I think, I think the immediate issue, uh, is the question of Syria. Israel has navigated this, I think, very carefully. Israel is sometimes more humble than it gets credit for. Sometimes the word chutzpah and Israel are used interchangeably. Uh, but I think that on certain issues, they are actually much more humble about their own ability to shape events. They don't think they could be decisive in Syria. And they learned in 1982 in Lebanon, it's very hard to social engineer the politics of an Arab country. Uh, and I think they're more humble than they get credit for in Washington and elsewhere. But they would like to know, they assume Trump is the deal maker on Syria. So how are you going to make a deal? What's the deal? Uh, how can you drive a wedge between uh, Russia and Iran when it comes to Syria? That will be, I think, a huge question because the point of departure is that Russia and Iran's interests are not identical, that Iran is much more committed to Assad. Yes, Russia sees Assad as an ally, and yes, they want to show they stand by their friends, and they have helped secure Assad's rule, and the Israelis think that Assad's there for a long time to come. But um, they clearly are nervous about Assad because they see him as the linchpin in the Iran Hezbollah access with him, that he, because he's uh, Alawite and he has these long-standing relationships, there's no other leader that's going to be linked. Any Sunni leader is not going to have those relationships. So they 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 think Iran's very all-in when it comes to Assad. They're not as sure about Russia. They think Russia might be open to let's make a deal, but what's the deal? And how uh, does Israel fit in on that deal? Can they drive a wedge between Russia and Iran? It looks hard given the fact that Iran has become a military supplier uh, of, to the Iranians and all other forms of security ties. So this is not a simple decision. I think Israel's most focused, it seems to me, on southern S Syria. If, you know, Israel used to have red line understandings in the 70s with Syria. And uh, you don't go below the Latani River or other or the Alawi River or uh, wherever it is but certainly the Latani, and those understandings were basically enforced. Can you draw new understandings? Maybe the damascus Dara road, uh, not to have Iran and Hezbollah in the Syrian part of the Golan. A third of the Golan is in Syria now, and uh, how do you ensure that Iran and Hezbollah don't go south? I think Israel's got Hezbollah already on their Lebanese border. They don't want to entrench Hezbollah on their Syrian border. Many of Hezbollah doesn't like the idea that they're fighting in Syria. We hear they want to come back, but uh, still, they would like to. Israel would like to know what's the game, what's the plan, what's the play, where does this go, where does the United States envisaging in terms of 
using this deal-making with Russia? Uh, and what is the U.S. willing to put on the table? Uh, clearly, uh, Russia would like to have some lifting of some sanctions. The banking sanctions is hurting them a lot, is from what we hear. But uh, what is, what's the shape of the deal, and what does it mean for Israel's border? I think that's the second issue. The third issue are the Sunni states. And I've, I think I've, I've used the joke uh, from this podium to say uh, um, Israel has become the only Sunni state to be Jewish. Uh, it's a, a unique moment in time, but it's all because of common challenges, common threats. With, with Egypt, it's the threat of Hamas in Gaza and ISIS in the Sinai. Egypt, I believe, has lost about 5,000 soldiers in the Sinai. Egypt and Israel are cooperating, and fortunately, a lot of the details are not in the public view. But uh, it is remarkable, uh, the amount of security cooperation. ISIS has brought Israel and Jordan closer together. And of course, the Iran nuclear deal has brought Israel and, and the Gulf states closer together. So these sets of, of, of ad hoc threats, uh, you would say they're not so ad hoc because often they have an Iran dimension, although not all of them do, uh, but certainly the Gulf does, but that these are bringing Israel and these Sunni states closer. But it's all under the table. And you know, a question that I think is legitimate to ask is what is the Arab incentive to go above the table? Maybe they like it the way it is now. They get it all for free, meaning Israel and, and the Arabs can share security cooperation, counterterrorism, but they don't have to do anything that's formalized. Um, is there a way to somehow bring more of it above the table? What's in it for, for the Arab side? The Arabs always say, but you've got to do something on the Palestinians. We've got a public opinion, too. We might not be a democracy, but it doesn't mean we don't have a public opinion. So I think that... This issue of what more can be done uh, here, I think, is going to be a key, a key question. Now, could Netanyahu suggest the idea of why don't you get this Arab quartet, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, two of the four, by the way, have diplomatic ties. Egypt and Jordan have diplomatic ties with Israel. Could you bring them to Washington? Could you find a way to somehow give this uh, uh, regional ties a push? The Palestinians always think worst-case scenario. They said if Israel gets closer to the Arabs, they're trying to bypass us. It's all a plot uh, to, to bypass the Palestinians. But could the idea is to try to also create some momentum uh, in a way that, uh, that would give Palestinians political cover to deal with Israel because the bilateral route has not exactly uh, borne fruit. And the U.S. has tried that in 2000 with Bill Clinton. 2007-8 with Condoleezza Rice, Annapolis, and the subsequent Abbas uh, Ulmer talks, and the third after the one I was a part of um, with 2013 and 14. So if we can't hit a home run, uh, maybe we could hit some singles. Uh, but that might require some regional umbrella of some support. Uh, and this will be a question, but I think it's a mistake to think that Israel looks at the Egypt, that the, the, the Sunnis just through the lens of you know, providing an umbrella on the Palestinian issue. I think they might come by saying, look, we don't want something in it for Israel. Maybe just, and, and Rob alluded to in his remarks, could there be closer U.S.-Sunni ties? Uh, in that sense, I think Israel also likes this role as regional advocate. I remember the Rabin years, when Rabin, before he would come to Washington, he would stop in Cairo, he would stop in Amman, he would stop uh, other places, because he'd like to say, here, I'm going to raise your issues in Washington. That has a lot of cachet for Israel, and, it, and people in Washington don't always appreciate that. 
but it really does have cachet. Now, in this case, I don't think Netanyahu is going to make visits, but he's got a very good phone call uh, uh, relationship with Sisi. They talk all the time, and uh, I assume that he will try to reinforce certain themes. But this idea of U.S. leadership in the region is something that he and, and the Arab states would certainly agree upon. And he might be a little nervous because basically he might feel that maybe could Trump be more like Obama in that he emphasizes retrenchment more than he uh, talks about asserting American leadership. Of course, he, you know, ISIS, Iran, but how much do you, you know, buck up traditional allies? Now, that might sound odd for people here to see what you're telling me that, that Israel's coming to Washington to advocate for the Arabs. And I think, yes, I think it's very possible. And certainly the CC case is, it would be a case in point. So I think this is something to look at. Maybe we have to think along lines we haven't thought of in the past. Could Israel think of finding ways to work with the U.S. to help give even the Iron Dome to the Saudis? Now, there might be QME issues, um, but this is something that I hear raised by very serious Israelis. Um, so I just think we got to think anew, um, to quote Lincoln, who always said, we got to think anew, we got to act anew. That's what he said in the second inaugural. The final point is on the Palestinian issue. And that's really the subject of the transition paper that, um, that uh, I did with Dennis. And I think here, again, we try to hit the home runs, but uh, the, the leaders, in my view, can't do it. There just is not enough overlap in the Venn diagram between them. And uh, we should try to hit some singles, uh, be more modest in our objectives, but succeed. Because the publics are so disbelieving, they don't they, you know, they, they've heard a lot of talk, and until they see actual movement, they're not going to be, uh, you know, that sense of public disbelief is going to make, you know, is not going to be helpful. So what can the United States do? Again, it takes time for the administration to get its people in place, and so, and this isn't the number one issue on the agenda. We have no illusions about that. But I would argue that if you ignore this issue, that the volatility uh, on the ground could get worse that the Palestinian Authority could collapse. Um, if there are a series of things that come into place where, you know, you have Bennett and the Israeli home, the Jewish home party advocating annexation, 60% of the West Bank. Uh, there are other things here, too, that, that their coalition members on the right are pushing. You've got to assume that's an issue. And, uh, and that will create for Israel very, a very difficult situation whereby, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it, a de facto binational reality will lead to start people calling, well, let's have one person, one vote. What's wrong with that? And that's against the raison d'etre of Israel as a, as a nation state of the Jewish people, of course, with equal rights for its Arab citizens, uh, and at the same time being uh, democratic. So this is something, in my view, that I think uh, want to have addressed. And I would argue, and I'm, I'm curious to hear Yoaz's view, but I think in a strange way, the uh, Israeli politics actually cut for, for, uh, for this with Netanyahu. Netanyahu has always had it. It's convenient for him on a certain level that the United, the United States has staked out a policy on settlements uh, because he could go back to his recalcitrant parties to his right and say, the Americans insist. Uh, we have to do something. Uh, but now, if there's a blank check, I think that puts him in a very difficult bind with the right because Mr. Bennett will drag him over the fence, so to speak, into the non-block areas, uh, which is 92% of the West Bank. Uh, and I don't think Netanyahu wants to go there. I think uh, he wants to stay focused on the, you know, the, 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 the narrow area of 8% of the land 
where close to 80% of the Israelis live. If you include the East Jerusalemites in that mix, Israel doesn't call them settlers, but then you're talking about 90% live in that narrow zone, while most of the, almost all the Palestinians live outside of that zone. So if you get into the maps, and I you know some people know that, we have a PowerPoint we could discuss in the Q&A, I think that's something that Netanyahu wants. Now, what is that, uh, I would say, magic formula? What is that way to, to get to that? Might be the Bush letter of 2004, that he whispers into uh, President Trump's ear, you know, we have this letter from the, that George W. Bush signed with Sharon. Uh, why not reaffirm it? Uh, the Obama administration did not, and that was the beginning of the deterioration and the relationship between those two countries uh, was over the, the refusal to reaffirm that. Now that letter, by the way, it should be stated precisely, doesn't talk about building in these settlement clusters or blocks tomorrow morning, but it says the long term is, is a deal where that these population centers will be part of uh, Israel probably, but it uh, says there has to be agreed with the Palestinians and basically implies, although it doesn't explicitly state the idea of land swaps, land exchanges. Now, Netanyahu, I'm sure, would like to operationalize that letter and say, well, if we're going to already, if that's going to be where we're going to end up, why not build there tomorrow? And, that, and so we get at that in our transition paper, seeing that as might be a way, that, but I would like to emphasize and not be misinterpreted that this requires strong U.S.-Israel coordination. And I think there's a precedent, and I go back to the Bush era uh, between uh, Condi Rice and, uh, and Sharon, who basically said every step of the way of the, of the barrier – Israelis call it the fence, um, that should be kind of synchronized with the United States. Not formally, but quietly. And in fact, before every round of the cabinet meetings in 2003 and 2004, they brought the, the maps here to discuss this. And I think that's important because I don't think any president wants surprises. And I think the statement that we saw at the end of King Abdullah's meeting on Thursday, or a couple hours later, whatever, was this idea of don't think the right shouldn't think that, um, you know, we're for settlements writ large. But he said new settlements might not be, you know, might not be helpful. And that is, might bring us back to that Bush era period, uh, as opposed to saying an undifferentiated view that all settlements are part of the problem and not part of the solution. Here you'd be saying some could be part of the, 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 the solution and some are part of the problem. So I see it a kind of a reversion to the mean uh, on, on the settlements issue. And that might be useful here in trying to find a way. Now, the U.S. would have to win support of the allies for this position. But people say, well, what are the Palestinians going to contribute? I mean, if the whole idea is to show where this thing is going, to deal with the realities on the ground, to avoid a deep impasse that could be destabilizing, what do the Palestinians contribute? And I think here, uh, because if this approach is to say, I'm maintaining the viability of a two-state outcome, even if I can't implement the thing tomorrow, but at least I have a direction. I know that I build in this area in coordination with the U.S. I don't build beyond the barrier. Of course, if the U.S. Israel could synchronize it with the Palestinians, it would be ideal, but we have a dysfunctional situation. So we're not dealing in the ideals right now. We're in the suboptimal uh, space there. But, um, but what could the Palestinians do? You have that, these martyr foundations. And it's wrong that uh, the PA, through the PLO, is funding these foundations to give money to uh, relatives of suicide bombers and stabbers. And that's got to stop. If you want Israel to signal a direction, a partnership, even we can't solve all the problems, we're showing where we're going, you know, the Palestinians have to do that too. So, and uh, maybe be more supportive of grassroots peace groups. 
You know, they'll meet with Meretz. Abbas will meet with Meretz when he comes through. But what about meeting with the Palestinian peace groups in, uh, in Ramallah? And maybe more of a focus on Palestinian governance, issues that have also not been the focal point, certainly since Salam Fayyad left. So I'm, I'm into the single zone. A solid single for me would be, um, and that's what this paper really argues for, would be a way of trying to put forward a direction, not to shoot for the fences, swing for the fences where you could strike out a fourth time, but uh, a solid single. So I think, I don't think we're going to come out of this meeting with any big announcements. I'd be very surprised if we did. It's an introductory meeting. I mean, they've met before, but as president and prime minister. But I think just to introduce some of these themes that could be foundations going forward would be very useful as the two countries build a relationship uh, and try to chat, uh, set its course for the next four years. This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance comes from multimedia editor Neil Orman. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.